You're listening to The Hoof of the Horse, a podcast dedicated to farriery and equine science with Dr. Simon Curtis. Our episode today is kindly sponsored by Hoofcare Essentials Foundation partner, Workman Horseshoes USA. I've had uh, an awful lot of questions about my new book, The Farrier, and rather than answer some of them individually, it seemed to me that it was easier just to make a podcast, so we listed a lot of the questions and Sophie's going to interview me about this latest project just to give you some idea of what's going on. Okay, I think a good one to start on would be where did the idea for this book come from and when did you start working on it? I'm not 100% sure when I first got the idea but You know, I evolved from taking photographs of horses' hooves and their legs and therefore having a camera in my hand. And remember, this is before iPhones and camera phones, so you genuinely had to carry a camera if you were interested in taking pictures of horses' hooves. So I used to do that all the time. Well, if you've got a camera there and then you see something of interest, you take another picture. Um, But I didn't really take myself seriously, shall we say, as a photographer of non-hooves and horses' legs and farrier's tools, (laughs) I don't suppose for the first 15 or 20 years. And then I had the chance to do a clinic with four Norwegian farriers and the deal was I shod horses with them for two days and then they took me out riding out in the north of Norway up into the mountains for three days. And I took my camera with me and I took pictures of our trip. And it is, it is actually in the book. It's one of the chapters. And that's really what inspired me. And I thought, Do you know, all these different farriers around the world and all these different horses need recording. So how long did it take to put the whole book together? That was a while ago in Norway. Yeah, that, that was. That was 10 years ago. And then I started to do my PhD... Yeah, at about that point, just after there. And I sort of needed some sort of antidote, shall we say, to the academic stuff. It's not that you don't have to think about photography. Of course you do, but uh, it's not so intense. So I started to do it as an antidote. And so it was, it was originally going to be a five-year project. Uh, that's what I had in my mind. Uh, unfortunately, things went a little bit wrong at one point, and so it... it that was 10 years ago, like I say, so it's been a 10-year project. And you said that it's an antidote to your academic work, so will farriers learn anything from the farrier? Initially, I thought there's nothing here to learn for a farrier, but I hope there's loads of enjoyment. And I think I'm wrong, there is things to learn. The obvious one is, having finally put all the book together and checked through it, there is an awful lot of pictures of different types of horseshoes. Uh, And there's the picture of the farrier that uses them and often the horse that they go on or the horse they go on. So, yeah, it's a different, it's not a direct textbook. I'm not pretending it's a textbook, it's not. But it it gives any farrier an idea of the range and the scope of farriery around the world. 
Yeah, the variety of different environments the farrier scene is quite staggering. There's the Egyptian mule shoeing amid a quite chaotic street in Luxor, and then you have groomed perfection in Wellington, Florida. How did you get such a range of farriers to take part? <laughs> well, I don't think I... Well, I was only turned down by one, and he's a very well-known farrier, but it's because he didn't have any available opportunities, not because he didn't want to do it, um, by and large, people are very good. If you ask them and explain to them what your project is, of course, they're quite flattered, but they're quite generous. You know, it was not something that used up people's time. It was quite deliberate. I don't want posed pictures. So I didn't stop them to do anything. And so I just said, you carry on doing your normal stuff and I'll try and find interesting pictures. I mean, occasionally I did ask them you know, where we were going, if there was somewhere quite nice. Or I, I was more likely to say, if we can go somewhere that's typical of your work, and then, then we could see uh, where they did work, the environment they were in. I mean, I did have ones where, for example, when I went to the south of France, and it was in winter, and I knew we were on the edge of the Pyrenees, and I said, will there be any backgrounds with snow-capped mountains? And they said, yes, there would. And when we got there... Yes, if they hadn't planted a load of trees in the way, then there would have been beautiful snow-capped mountains. So, um, anyway, but there's, there's things like that. And, and most people got the idea of what I was after, uh, mostly. A, a few people didn't quite understand. And one or two farriers were a little bit conscious because they were used to my textbooks and they were wary of me showing their shoeing. I think just a little bit of lack of confidence. And when I actually had to say, shall we say, in my, my often less than diplomatic way, actually, I really don't care about your shoeing. It's that you are shoeing that is what mattered, that you are shoeing this horse here in this place, and, and this is what you look like, and this is what your workshop looks like, or your rig looks like, or the horses look like. But actually, I really don't care whether you put in six nails or eight nails I don't care where you fit the shoe so it was a different way of looking at things and once I'd reassured farriers it was more them that I was after then they tended to relax and um, I think as well that when most of my projects with them were a whole day well you can't keep up this front and this worry for a whole day you obviously they were thinking about the shoe and how they were fitting it and how they were shoeing the horse. They, so they do tend to forget you're there in the end, which is obviously part of the point of um, doing unposed pictures. So each of the farriers in the book has a chapter to themselves. What did you want to illustrate with each chapter? Okay, in a, in a perfect world, um, I would have the farrier with a typical horse that they shoe in the most interesting background. So for example, Uncle Saeed, right at the end of the book, shoeing tourist carriage horses in front of the temples of Luxor, is almost my ideal picture because it showed the temples of Luxor, the, the roadside where they shod, uh, the type of horses and him shoeing. Uh, obviously you can't always get that, but I, I think each one of them, they have their own individual story and I hope people see the story within the pictures. I kept myself to my description uh, to 150 words absolute maximum. 
So that's not many words to tell you who they are, where they are and what they do. And that was quite deliberate because I wanted people to enjoy the pictures and mull over them a little bit and see more and more things in each of those pictures. So, yeah, the important thing to me was each one was an individual and there was an individual story. And the more I could illustrate that, the happier I was. So you had a general idea before you went to places the environment, what that would be like, and you knew it would be someone shoeing horses. Was there anything you didn't expect to see on your photographic travels? Well, they, they weren't always planned. <laughs> I bumped into a pal in Australia who happened to be gluing some shoes on a horse, and I didn't know I was even going to see him. I was with another farrier, and they said, shall we have breakfast with John? And I said, yes, and, and he happened to mention at breakfast, and they, we were 300 yards from where he was shoeing and I said can I come round so that I didn't have a lot of time with that one I had an hour to get my my pictures but um, I knew it filled a gap so it wasn't always totally planned I had to be ready to take um, advantage but of course since they're all over the world I had to make some plans and there was really a split between farriers I already knew and people who had invited me places so I was going somewhere and I just had to say, do you know a farrier that shoes here? And um, yeah, there was a couple of examples of those where I just got a quick introduction, explained what I was up to and got on with it. So you've mentioned Egypt, Australia, Norway. Do you have any idea how many countries? Yeah, I did, I did <laughs> count them in the end. Uh, there is, um, yeah, 21 countries that I went to and there's it, it is quite a spread it's the whole six continents on earth that have horses on them had there have been any horses in the Antarctic I would have made sure I got there but there there isn't any so I've had to stick with those six east and west north and south there's a it's a real spread you know um, from as I say quite far north quite far south and I didn't know whether the Norwegian one was the further most north or I did get to Iceland as well, and they're on a similar uh, latitude. And I think Iceland was just very slightly um, one degree further north or something like that. Yeah. So seeing so many different farriers and the whole scope of what horseshoeing can probably contain, did you learn anything new? Yes, I would imagine I learned from each and every one of them. And... Um, I think one of the things that's interesting is that shoeing is, is, most of it, of course, the reason we shoe horses is to help them. That sounds altruistic, but it's to help them to do a better job for us. So, And whether you are a show jumper, you want your horse to jump higher and land safer for you as a rider, or whether you have got a donkey pulling a load over a relatively slick road in Egypt, you want that donkey to go as far as you can get it to go and, and work for as long. So, so the number of ways that shoes are adapted, uh, there's, a, there's a huge variety of the way we try and do it. I think the other thing I learned is how much a farrier is driven by economics. You know, um, I learned something in the third world that they rarely hand make nails nails are fairly widespread but they hand make shoes because they're too expensive to buy factory made so economics is is driving that 
And the other thing I think which would please most farriers around the world is that, of course, these very poor countries, they are shoeing their horses. They're not shoeing their horses out of some fad. They're shoeing them because it makes the horses do their duties or whatever you're expecting them to do better and for longer and it keeps them sound. You know, a lame horse or a very lame horse is not much use to anybody. So if I ever needed convincing of how useful shoeing is in the horse world, after doing this project, I'm more than ever convinced. So did you take quite a documentarian position where you did not make any judgment on the... I made absolutely no judgment. It's not, and it's not for me to judge. As I say, they're all, they all have different reasons. Um, they all have their own skills. And yeah, so totally unjudgmental. And I... It sounds a bit, well, I hope it's not boring, that I didn't try and paint my idea of the picture, you know. And, of course, I want to show extremes. That's what we're interested in. Uh, I can give you an example of uh, an extreme. One of my last projects was to go to Wellington in Florida. Now, if ever there was um, highly visible wealth shown through horses, and, you know, I've worked in Newmarket all my life where there's plenty of wealth shown um, but it, the exuberance of this wealth in, in, in Wellington but where I pictured um, a couple of the farriers showing was round uh, behind the you know the main arena in the stabling area well it was almost third world they'd had a high rainfall which they often have in the winter in Florida and you had to take a detour 50 yards around this giant puddle to get to where the horses were being shod. And I, I just, I like the contrast that, you know, that, that um, and it wasn't done with a chip on my shoulder that here's all these people with lots of money and they spend lots of money on the horses and yet look at the stable area that the farriers have got to work in. Um, I just like contrast. Uh, and as I say, the, the, even the, the one in Egypt with the temples of Luxor, I can't even tell you whether they're 3,000 years old or 4,000 years old. And I know the road that we're on since they've been excavating. I mean, the road was there all that time ago, uh, going from the temples of Karnak that a lot of people have heard about to the temples of Luxor, the other side, you know, a mile apart. So again, it was a contrast of extremes. And of course, they were shooing for tourists for these carriages. Lots of people, they spend money to go along and then they like to trot up and down the road in a carriage. And, of course, Egypt is having a really bad time of it for a, for a number of reasons. And this was taken well before the, the current virus problem. And so they're very short of tourists. And, of course, uh, the, the, the cab owners weren't doing well, the horses didn't look great, and the farriers are suffering because there's not as many horses to shoot. And they normally rely on rich Western tourists to help fund a lot. Now that the book's all put together, do you know if you have a favourite farrier, country, Oh, type? that would be unfair, any of that. Um, <laughs> I don't know. There's, there's, there's some real... There's so many of them are characters. Um, and for favourite countries... Again, they, they differ as much as, as, as the farriers in them. And, and it's not me trying to be diplomatic. Um, I, I loved so many of them. And all right, I suppose a test would be which one do I want to get back to next? Um, 
I really enjoyed Brazil and Argentina. I had been to Argentina, I'd been to Brazil twice before, but Argentina was my first trip. And really with both those countries, they're both huge countries. So actually I only saw one little bit of both of them. Tell us about the barriers that you photographed in Argentina. Okay, well, the, the farriers I photographed in Argentina, there's one uh, de uh, Caponte, and I'm probably going to have to apologise for the way I pronounce people's names. Uh, one was really good. He sort of hosted me, although I didn't know him directly, but uh, a fellow farrier put me in touch with him. And, of course, being in Argentina, this, this is where I sort of try and fulfil sometimes, shall we say, the, the stereotypical view in that... Argentina's known for its polo horses and polo, and, and that's what the main part of his business was. And we went to a wonderful polo farm early in the morning, and then we went on the polo club of Argentina and saw a game. So I got some background photographs. And the other thing I really wanted to, to capture was a gaucho, which of course is the uh, Latin American equivalent of the American cowboy. And one put me with somebody there in that part of Argentina where they have um, gauchos. And, and he was great, um, Gerardo. And he, he actually put his traditional costume on for me. And it was almost like it changed his character. He suddenly became this um, very proud Latin American, you know. And um, so that was nice right at the end and uh, to see that. Of course, there were, shall we say, stereotypes that I didn't get uh, because I had intended to get out to the Midwest of America and get a cowboy shoeing a quarter horse, you know, on a ranch, and, and I, I didn't get that. But I got other stereotypical ones. I got um, a couple of young Scottish farriers shoeing a Clydesdale on the edge of the Highlands up in uh, in the north of Scotland. Um, and I got an English farrier placing racehorses in the home of racing Newmarket. So, so I, I sort of fulfilled some of it, and some of it I just had to, should we say, live with the fact that I didn't get there. So obviously we have to mention the coronavirus that interrupted yeah. your book process. Who did you have? Was there anyone that you really wanted to take a photo of? Any women? Well, <laughs> yeah, I know, I know pe people are not going to believe this, but, but three of the four people I missed out on because I had to close down the project and get on with it uh, were female farriers. I, I have got uh, some female farriers in the book, so I don't want to say that I haven't, and, and I have. Um, but that's just, it sounds like a poor excuse, but that's, <laughs> that's just the way it happened. In fact, I had a job booked for eight o'clock uh, on Tuesday morning, at uh, eight o'clock the evening before, our Prime Minister stood up and announced the complete lockdown. So I was 12 hours away from getting one more in, um, and that's what happened, and she was very understanding, um, but it, it didn't happen, and so be it. But, you know, of course, I then settled down to edit the pictures and put it together, and to be quite honest, you wonder just how big this book was going to be if I'd have kept going and kept going. So I think, um, you know, it was time to call a stop, put it together. Uh, I'd covered the whole of the world, so I concentrated on that, really. 
So how are you going to launch the Farrier? Is there going to be a party? How do you think you're going to do it? Well, again, you know, the last book we had a virtual launch, thinking that was, which it was, modern and new, and, and it went brilliantly. So this one I thought, well, we'll go back to a traditional launch. <laughs> well, it still doesn't look like it's going to happen because here in the UK we're still only allowed to have uh, 30 people gatherings. And if I'm going to throw a party, then I need 100 people there. So um, minimum. So um, we're going to do a virtual launch and uh, we hope everybody will take the opportunity to ask questions about the book and other things um, that certainly haven't been covered in this podcast and, and give people the chance to have an early look at some of the things. As I say, me answer direct questions and let everybody know where they can get it from. But, I mean, I think I can say here that they can either get it directly from us, from the website, um, Curtis Farrier Books, or, you know, there's there's a huge range of uh, local sellers around the world who will supply you with a book if you contact them. So you have, you, have, you know, a number of options, and you can even email us, and we'll let you know where. But it's on, it's on the um, website who your local dealer is. So we've talked about what's inside the book, all of the farriers in there. What about the outside? How did you choose your front cover? Well, we, we ran a little bit, not so much of a competition because there wasn't a prize, but we ran um, almost a questionnaire and we got lots of feedback. We offered uh, either five or six alternative covers and one, probably at least 90% of the votes were for it, if not 95 and Another one used up most of the rest of the votes. And actually, they were my first and second choice already. <laughs> uh, we, we did have good advice off people, so I don't want people not to think their, their views aren't taken notice of. Um, our designers, their name is Cubic, so that's probably why they like squares. And they put a square into the title, onto the picture. And people really didn't like it. The people that, you know, that it was fussy, it distracted from the picture, all sorts of comments... And we went with that. So we have removed that. The cover will, uh, the title won't look as it was put on the on the mock-up for people to have their view. But the picture is the picture that, that they chose, uh, overwhelmingly chose. And I think it's a great representative picture for the book. So which farrier is that on the front cover? Okay, well, that was, funny enough, that was the Clydesdale that was, or one of the Clydesdales being shot up in Scotland. Murray McIntosh gets his hands and his hammer <laughs> and a horse's shoeing on the front cover. But it was, it was just very representative of our craft. It was a very traditional view of our craft, but nevertheless, uh, it was a nice picture and the composition was good and, yeah, we, we liked it. You told me something interesting about coffee table books that I hadn't heard before about how you're going to have them open. Oh, the idea is to mull over pictures. You know, we've got used to too much of an instant, you know, flicking through Instagram or something like that. And I, I'm sure people, when they initially get it, might have a quick flick through. But the real way I would hope people would use it is to put it on their coffee table, open a page and leave it there for a day and, and, and mull over that picture. And obviously, people's have their choices and they have their tastes and there'll be pictures in there they don't like. I hope there's lots of them they really love. And so maybe if there's a picture they love, they leave it open there, you know, for a few days and mull over it. Um, that, that's the way you should really enjoy the experience of a coffee table book. 
we can't have, or most of us don't have a mansion big enough to have, you know, 200 pictures on the wall, but we can do that and just gradually enjoy it. Yeah, so that, that was one of the things that was a really big departure, is that a textbook and an art book are totally different, really, or, or very different. And so one of the things we've done is that it's only going to have a thousand copies. So, so it is a limited edition, and so that gives added value, because one would hope that from the moment the thousandth one is sold, they have a cachet value. And if they're like my other books, that will not take too long to do. And, and each one is signed and numbered. So, and of course that... So you have to number a thousand of them. <laughs> I, I, I've been practising. I, I, I can count to a thousand. <laughs> so, yeah, so the very first book will be signed by me and it will be one over a thousand. The next one will be two over a thousand, etc. I'm not sure if anybody's going to get the first book. I think that might be the one that goes on my shelf. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you hope people will take away from the book? Okay, uh, I hope they take away from the book the same reason as I did it, the joy of our craft. And that, again, that's, that's what I mean about it being an antidote to academic work or another textbook, in that I know people enjoy learning, but I just want this just to be pure joy. And just, I hope there's a few pictures that have a wow factor, where farriers say, oh my goodness, look at that. But I think it's just the joy of that we are in such a unusual craft that it's so international it's so varied you know every horse and and let's face it some some breeds of horse have more than one discipline so it multiplies up and the farriers that go with it are all different now I could only do the 56 chapters which probably amounts to at the most 70 farriers because some of them are not single farriers and they represent the whole world I would have liked to have got everybody in it <laughs> but you can't do that so yeah I hope that what the main thing people get from the book is just joy is just being able to say to their friends look this is my craft this is what I do this is how important it is this is how varied it is uh, this is how wonderful it is so are you going to be doing any more photo projects then now that you've got <laughs> this one under your oh uh, well I it, it, <laughs> I'm sure I've got so much into my photography that I will... Can't stop now. Yeah, but I've got a little bit of an idea of a non-equine one, but I'm just still mulling over that at the moment. Um, got a few other things on the go, but yeah, I've loved my photography more and more. And what I should have said is that I'm pretty much self-taught. I, I did go on a very short course, and that helped me a lot. And, um, and I've learnt along the way different things the book is not put in chronological order and I think because that would show up way too much my <laughs> development um, but I think some people might be able to guess especially people that really know photography they might uh, realize that some of my shots maybe became I'm not saying more sophisticated but a little bit um, uh, yeah developing your style over time yeah and, and I'm sure it will have a style. And I, I think one of the most important things in, in any art is that you don't consciously say, this is going to be my style. You just do what you can best, but other people can see a style. And even I can see, but I'm going through the book over and over again to get it right and to edit the pictures. 
And I'm certainly not going to say, because that's for people to see, the different idiosyncrasies of my style, but I can see what I like. And um, I decided on a couple of things. I didn't ever use a flash, and I never used a tripod. So if I did another project, maybe I'd do both those things. But I, obviously around horses, tripods are not great. (laughs) And I wanted to get in there. And um, and that, again, was another advantage of being a farrier. I'm not concerned about a farrier shoeing the horse one side and me nearly getting under it, its belly to get a good picture of them. Um, you know, I'm used to being around horses. But yes, yeah, so tripods don't really suit that. And so I decided I wasn't going to use one. So it was all handheld. Flashes are not great around horses as well. But I don't actually like what flashes do to most photography, actually. So I avoided that. Otherwise, I didn't really have any rules. I think the only important thing is the image, in a way. When somebody's looking through a coffee table book, who cares how they got the image? You either like it or you don't like it. And actually, even saying about liking or not liking is a little bit of a simplistic way about a photograph. I would say a couple of my photographs are ugly. And I always remember the, um, the quote when, when Picasso was confronted by somebody who said, your pictures are ugly. He said, without ugliness, there is no beauty. And um, I'm not comparing myself with Picasso for one <laughs> second. For one second. But what I'm saying is that, you know, I've got a photograph in South Africa, which is a beautiful country, but we know that you don't, let alone leave your car unlocked you didn't leave your house unprotected so I managed to combine some barbed wire with a picture with about 20 horses in it you know the security there so you could say well that's a bit of an ugly picture the top half is this horses out in paddocks and the bottom half is this razor wire but I thought that in in that one picture it told you something about South Africa so I think it's important to do that as well you know the um, we, we were talking earlier about the donkeys and ponies in Egypt. I mean, those streets are pretty ugly. You wouldn't want to live in the neighbourhood, but that's where horses are shod. So that's where I wanted to go and, and get those pictures. Well, it sounds like you're very into your photography now, so I think that you must have had a favourite. At least tell us an, an experience that was unexpected or just really good. All right, okay, so I have got to answer the question since you asked it twice. Um, I went out to Morocco to photograph Zouer, who worked for me for about 18 months, 10 years or so ago, and he's a Moroccan, speaks very good English. He'd gone back to Morocco, and so it was an opportunity, and Morocco is about a two and a half hour flight from the UK. So I phoned him up and asked if I could go, and he said yes, and I flew into Rabat, and I photographed him, and it, actually, funny enough, I think because he was busy with other things, he didn't quite understand the project when I asked about a local farrier. And because it was a short trip, it was two days, and then, of course, we think of Morocco as being desert and North African. Yeah, half of it is. The other half is very green and quite wet. It's between the Atlantic and the, and the Med. So we went off to, it, he called it a farmer's market or a souk. Well... I'm sure he won't be upset if I say, it was like stepping into some sort of refugee camp. It was just churned up mud, broken stands, and it was fairly awful, and it was pouring with rain, or it just stopped. So we met up with this old farrier who had made shoes there, and he is in the book. But when Zuer 
asked him in Arabic if he would let me photograph him shoeing a horse. He said, do you think I'm going out in the rain and shoeing a horse? I'm not. <laughs> so that was that. So then finally Zouet said, well, you know, there's a horse fair, a Tourbida, and I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly. Uh, and he said, it's about an hour's drive. I said, can we go? Well, by the time we got there, the sun was out, but it was like stepping into something medieval. Um, apparently, these go on fairly regularly in Morocco, and it, each village produces um, a serba, which I think we would call a horse troop of about 15 riders and horses on these Berber horses, dressed in traditional outfits and with these muskets. So there's this black powder going off all the time. And that for some reason, there seems to be some cultural thing, you know, amongst the Arabic people who love firing guns in the air. So you'd be walking along talking and suddenly this huge kaboom goes off behind your ear and makes you jump. But, of course, he knew the farrier there, uh, Murad, and so we photographed Morad working on one of these. But honestly, the tents there, uh, the horses, they were dressed in traditional gear. It, it was just wonderful. So it happened almost by chance. It, it happened because we couldn't get the other photographs. And I can't believe they would have ever been matched this one. So that sort of typified my book in some way, though most of them were planned. But just this farrier in a situation that I didn't even know existed in the world. And there he was shoeing these horses uh, for this. This thing went on six or seven days and it was all parties and dancing and competitions. And yeah, it was wonderful. So why don't you come along to the online launch party, which we've got uh, on Thursday and we're filling it with uh, quizzes and prizes and your chance to ask me about this project and learn a little bit more about it. We'd like to thank Hoofcare Essentials Foundation and their partners for sponsoring this episode. You can find out more information at hoofcareessentials.com. You can follow more of Simon's work on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Simon Curtis. To get in contact, please email thehoofofthehorse at gmail.com. And for everything else, go to drsimoncurtis.com. Thanks for listening.